Episode 73 Using Commercial Off-The-Shelf Components to Build Spacecraft Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. If you follow this podcast, you will notice a very long pause since the previous episode. I've been busy writing my second book, The Indian Space Programme, which is now finally complete. So, I'm now back to my familiar but irregular podcasting mode. The growth in the space sector, now widely estimated to be worth over 300 billion US dollars globally, is primarily being driven by the commercial space sector. Bulk of the expenditure is in satellite television, communication services, Earth observation, and businesses enabled by global navigation. In the past, it was the technological development, driven by national space programs, that triggered the development of low-cost consumer products. Today, it's the other way around. Sophisticated manufacturing methods and high public demand for digital products have produced low-cost consumer devices which, without too much modification, can be qualified for use in space. This is particularly true in the sudden growth of the small satellite market. I'm speaking today with uh, Dr. Rajan Dedi, the founder and CEO of Space Chips, a UK-based company which provides industrial R&D and space electronics design consultancy I was intrigued by Rajan's 2017 blog post entitled Using and Selecting COTS, that's Commercial Off-the-Shelf Components for Space Applications. So in this episode, I want to understand to what extent spacecraft manufacturers can use components for spacecraft that they actually can just buy off the high street. Rajan operates his consultancy under a very unusual and novel company name, spacechips.co.uk. I started off by asking him if that domain name was available or did he have to go out of his way to acquire it? No, it was available. Uh, I don't think anyone else would be crazy enough to uh, come up with such a name. You know, I thought a few years back, if I ever set up my own company, I'm going to call it uh, Space Chips. You completed your PhD at the University of Edinburgh in electronics, hence the chips. How did you get into the space sector, and can you summarise what you did? So, my PhD was in medical electronics and medical signal processing. And medical electronics and space electronics both belong 
to, to the area of high reliability electronics. So whether you have, let's say, a patient on the operating table who's suddenly undergone cardiac arrest and has to be defibbed, or whether you have a satellite in geostationary orbit, 22,000 miles straight up, the engineering of those electronics simply has to work. You know, if, if it's the patient on the operating table, that defibrillator may not have been used for two months, but there and then it simply has to work. Otherwise, the consequences could be fatal. And likewise, with a, with, with, with a spacecraft or a satellite, once it's launched, you don't see it again. And, um, you know, from the moment its operator switches it on, that piece of engineering basically has to work. And so it, it, it was that element of high reliability electronics that interested me many years ago. It's a wonderful connection, uh, medical electronics and space. So let's just talk about some of the um, basics then. When we talk about small satellites, what sort of satellites are we talking about? We help clients uh, who, who, who make many different sizes of satellites. Uh, and, 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 you know, they're given various names depending on their size and weight. So, for example, there's a, a femtosatellite for a structure that's, that's you know, less than 100 grams. And then there's a nanosatellite from 1 to 10 kilograms. And then there's a microsatellite and a mini-satellite. Uh, so, you know, there's so many different sizes and, 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 and each has, you know, each offers different levels of sophistication and, and capability. Um, and um, so, for example, if you were to take um, a large geostationary telecommunication satellite, so that lives in geosynchronous orbit, which is sort of 22,000 miles straight up from the equator. And, you know, you know and, and some of those are big, big birds, you know, you know, size of a bus that mm -hmm. you would sort of have going, uh, you know, some of those large geosatellites are, are huge spacecraft. Uh, but then last week, we were reviewing the electronics for a client who's making a femtosatellite. You know, this is something you can place in the palm of one hand. And uh, so these smaller satellites tend to live in low Earth orbit, uh, and they're typically used to provide um, sort of remote sensing capability. Um, in fact, there are a number of applications which small satellites target. Uh, so today, for example, you have over 3 billion people on our planet who do not have uh, internet access. So today you have a number of aspiring operators who are planning to fill that gap in the market and they're going to be launching constellations of small satellites which will reside in low Earth orbit specifically for the purpose of providing um, internet to the three billion or so people who don't have internet access today. Between now and 2026, there will be 3,600 small satellites launched, of which 2,100 
uh, will be small satellites for Earth observation applications. And the reason, the reason why um, there are so many Earth observation satellites is because we have some very major societal problems. And I, I'll, I'll just share one or two with you. Mm-hmm. Between now and 2050, the world's population will increase to almost 10 billion people. To feed that amount of people, farmers will have to grow an additional 70% more food. However, at the same time as this increasing population, the amount of land available to grow food is dwindling. So small satellites are being used to monitor uh, crop health and soil health in order to help farmers optimize of the food which they grow in their fields. So the market for small satellite applications is huge. It's many, many billions of dollars. Just to come back down to the very small satellites, if you have something very small, there's not much in the way of capability that it will have. What kind of applications can these Kento satellites be used for? Well, well, only a few weeks ago we were asked to peer review the design of a Kento satellite. So this is a satellite which quite literally fits on the palm of one hand. Okay, so so its owner um, provides a small amount of space to his clients to put a small payload. And that may be... Also, this Kento satellite has a camera, Mm -hmm. okay? So so that, that payload could be, for example... It could be to monitor. It could be for a space science experiment. It could be to measure and monitor radiation, or it could be to 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 take photographs of the of of the Earth. Okay. Now, you're right with a femtosatellite, um, because of its small size, you are limited to what you can achieve. But today we have sort of. Um, 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter or sort of 10 centimeter by 30 centimeter CubeSats. And you know, those satellites have small solar panels and that allows them to harvest energy from the sun. And that allows them therefore to recharge and replenish their batteries to prolong their mission life. And, and, and those have quite, you know, those have value and those have very interesting uh, payloads. And uh, so you can achieve much more with a CubeSat uh, compared to uh, a tiny Femtosat. So the very small camera on this very small satellite would provide potentially live video from orbit. Besides that, uh, is there anything else that you could practically use the Femtosatellites for? I think Femtosatellites, are good for doing simple experiments. So, for example, if you wanted to, let's, for example, if you were a component manufacturer and you wanted to get some indication 
of the suitability of your component for use in space, then this would be one way of getting that answer as well as some heritage in space. So, you know, today, for example, when you have um, components that are, being, that are being considered for use in space applications, typically one of the things you have to do, you have to take them to a facility which is known as a cyclotron. And a cyclotron attempts to mimic the environment of space. A cyclotron is a facility where you can expose your electronics to radiation with a view to mimicking the harsh radioactive environment of space. So if you could uh, de-risk your component in space instead of going to a cyclotron, then that would be one use for a tiny femto. Uh, you, you would need several femto satellites. Mm -hmm. but, you know, that's not, that, that's not an issue. That is uh, one of the value propositions of uh, having a femtosite, a satellite, is that you could have a small constellation of them. So if you did have um, satellites, uh, femtosatellites, they're cheaper because they're smaller, but returning to this idea of commercial off-the-shelf components, what can satellite manufacturers buy today from the high street, which is in effect space ready what kind of components are we talking about the, the key motivation for using cots components is their cost okay you know why pay um $25,000 when you can pay um $1,500 okay or why pay $100,000 for a specific type of microchip when you can get a COTS version for about $500. You know, you know the, 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 difference, the difference is huge, okay? And, 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 and in many cases, the performance and capability of qualified space-grade components lags the capability of their uh, commercial cousins. Um, so when you're selecting uh, using and selecting low-cost COTS components requires a lot of due diligence at the start. Okay, you have to assess, uh, um, for example, if you were to take a microchip, um, has that microchip been fabricated in a way that it could be potentially suitable for use in space? And I'll give you one example. Today we are using a particular type of component, never ever intended for use in space. And the manufacturer told me that if we were to use the part as recommended for his commercial customers, it simply wouldn't be suitable. Oh. However, however, we're using his part in a slightly different way, which is allowed and which is legal, and by using it in a slightly different way, there is an impact in the maximum performance which we can achieve. However, that low-cost commercial part suddenly becomes suitable for use in space. And so is that the, the proposition then? So, for example, I have uh, what we all have in our mobile phones, these very small accelerometers, the GPS, 
HD cameras, are those types of systems built to such a good rigorous standard that they would be usable in space with no or very little modification? It, de- it depends on the specific technology, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, just to give you a s- s- simple example, in your mobile phone, you will have uh, small computer chips. Let's call them CPUs, mm-hmm. okay? Now, now, today, on the ground, CPUs are being used in many, many safety-critical applications. It could be the braking system of your car, it could be the braking system of your train. Uh, it could be used uh, on board civilian aircraft. The reality is, though, although they're being used for safety critical applications, they are being used uh, in a radiation-free environment. Okay, so in some cases, you have some, for example, in a CPU that's used in your car. That car may have, you know, it may have to work in the extremes of the Canadian winter, mm-hmm. which could be minus 40 degrees C, yeah. or it may have to work in the extremes of an Arizona desert in the summer, which is plus 45 degrees C, okay? So although you have temperature extremes, you don't have uh, sort of exposure to harmful radiation. So the, the primary proposition here is that in the past, for spacecraft manufacturers, they would have to build the individual components and then systems and then make sure they were suitable for all the forces of launch, the vibration and acceleration. And when they get into space, they can handle the uh, acceleration, the extreme variations in temperature when they're in the Earth's shadow and in the sunshine, and indeed the radiation environment that exists beyond the Earth's atmosphere. And what you're suggesting is that a lot of the components that are built by standard manufacturing methods today, can be used in space systems with little modification rather than designing them from scratch. It really depends on the the customer and their reliability needs. For example, if you are a telecommunication operator, if you were to own a telecommunication satellite, you know, from the moment that switched on, you simply, you know, you don't want that uh, telecom satellite to fail because every microsecond it's not working, you're losing revenue, uh-huh. okay? So, so so that particular type of user has a very specific level of reliability, okay? If, on the other hand, you are a, a let's say, a um, a provider of a small satellite providing space science experiments, that's, you know, that's almost the opposite end of reliability. If it's in a polar orbit, you may only be able to use your, your electronics for five minutes out of every 90, and that's fine, okay? It really depends on the, the operator and the required level of reliability. From uh, what your article was saying, uh, there are plenty of examples of commercial off-the-shelf components that have been packaged into a spacecraft and are actually operating successfully in space right now. Oh, yes, many. And in fact, many of the uh, small sat constellations 
um, uh, are, are, are using those parts. SpaceX's uh, spacecraft, which is used to restock the um, International Space Station, mm-hmm. as part of their contract with NASA, from what I've been told, I don't believe we have any uh, space-grade parts on that spacecraft. Really? Yes, but you know that, that that's unique because it's simply up there for a very, very short period of time. You know, it simply goes from Earth to the International Space Station and then back again. Okay, so it lives in a very low Earth orbit, and it's uh, it, it's only up there for you know a very short period. Of time. So this is the um, Dragon, the SpaceX resupply vehicle, which is used just for transporting of materials, not a human or man rated. That's right. And I guess that's one of the innovations behind SpaceX that is uh, responsible for making them as competitive as they are, I guess. Yes, we, we, we live in exciting times because the um, cost to access space is getting lower almost on a sort of a yearly basis. If we just reflect on the rather complex ecosystem that is these days the space industry. I think what you specialize in are really are the chips, the the microprocessor level, uh, system level systems, which uh, uh, are at the heart of the some of the subsystems which would form a spacecraft. Are there these days companies that would build a whole spacecraft from scratch, or would space companies buy bits and pieces, a bit like a, building a car, I guess. You'd buy different components and subsystems and then integrate them into a vehicle. Is that how the space industry works as well? Both of those um, models are being used today. You know, you, you, you have organizations that design and build a satellite from scratch. And, and then you have... Uh, other types of companies who are effectively system integrators, uh, you know, they will buy all the various subsystems from uh, bespoke OEMs, and then they'll sort of connect them all together to construct this final spacecraft, and they'll then deliver that to the launch site, uh, where it'll be launched for its owner, the operator. In any spacecraft, you have uh, many subsystems, uh, communication, propulsion, the sensors. Are there some systems or subsystems which are more suitable for COTS than others? In, in some cases, it depends once again on the individual customer or the mission and the specific reliability needs. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, if, if you have a, a small satellite in low Earth orbit, which has a mission of one year, uh-huh. then that type of spacecraft may baseline predominantly COTS components. You, you mentioned um, the guessing the huge growth in the number of satellites in Earth orbit uh, in the coming years, particularly those providing the internet from orbit. Most of those satellites are small satellite categories. And I've noticed that even in the launch launcher provision, a lot of companies are now focusing on 
smaller launch vehicles in order to launch smaller satellites rather than what had been the case up until about five or six years ago. Everything more towards bigger launch vehicles so they could launch larger satellites to particularly geosynchronous orbit for communication. So as we see the growth in smaller satellites, uh, I guess there's going to be uh, uh, an inevitable uh, growth in the use of commercial off-the-shelf products in the space industry. Is that how you see it? Yes, and um, well, first, the COTS components have been flying successfully in orbit for, for many decades now, okay? Uh, it just so happens with all of these uh, small satellite constellations, and, and, and given that many of these constellations are being developed and owned by aspiring private commercial new space companies around the world, there's much, there's much more focus now on, on using low-cost cuts components for space applications. You know, I remember just two decades ago, uh, the idea of having a personal phone which provided so many services in real time was just something I could not have imagined. So the idea of a personal satellite that you could be on holiday, get to your phone, and then actually dial into your satellite, which is perhaps flying over your home, and you can actually look down straight at your home from orbit at uh, on demand. How realistic is that? And is that is there a demand for that kind of service in the, in the near future? Do you think? I don't know why anybody would want to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, in, you know, today if you're on holiday, uh, you know. If, if, if you want to see what's happening inside or outside your home, you know, there are internet-enabled devices uh, which will allow you to see within your home uh, or, 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 or outside your home. T- today, there are, what, approximately, what, 17, 1,800 satellites in orbit today, okay? Uh, there's another 3,600 um, uh, small satellites scheduled for launch. I think the services that are being offered today, I can only speak for myself, but uh, I'm more than happy with what I'm being offered today. And uh, just finally then, Rajan, I know you work with international uh, customers right around the world. I think you said about 23 different countries. You will see at first hand then the idea that as satellites become cheaper, new players, countries which um, initially would not enter into the space arena because it was just so cost prohibitive, now as the costs drop, they can. And is that another reason for the growth in the demand in small satellite market? Yes. And you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the developing economies have major societal 
uh, issues they want to address, particularly sort of earth observation issues, you know, to be able to monitor their uh, sort of um, high, high, sort of crop yields and fishing stocks and being able to monitor sort of the weather and climate change and so on. A lot of these developing economies want to own their own data. They don't want to be relying on data from outside. So as the cost to launch decreases and as the cost to build sort of small satellites exploiting cost components, you're seeing a lot of developing countries launching their first or second uh, spacecraft. And I think uh, you will be helping that wave of uh, new countries through your company, Spaceships, to make that first move. So if, uh, Rajan, if people listening to this would want to contact you, what's the best way to contact you? I'm on LinkedIn, and that's probably is, is, is the best way to contact me, uh, or through my blog. My blog is called Out of This World Design, and I've been writing that since 2013. And that's a free educational resource uh, on space electronics. And every month I post an article on things such as uh, space weight FPGAs, mixed signal electronics, power electronics, how to test satellites, how to simulate space electronics. So you can either contact me via LinkedIn or if you read my articles, there are links there which will allow you to email me. Rajan Bedi, very much appreciate your time. Thanks very much. And perhaps we can talk again and see how things develop in the near future. Also, thank you, Kabir.